headphone connected to the microphone, microphone connected to the interface, interface connected to my Macintosh, Macintosh connected to the Skype server. The Skype just keeps crashing on me. Now hear the word of the Lord. This is Chip in Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. And welcome to episode 55 of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Ceremonies of Light and Dark. I hate that song. <laughs> it is the worst. That is that song is yet another prisoner reference nestled in the uh, in the arms of Babylon Five. Uh, it, yeah, that was from one of my least favorite episodes of The Prisoner. It is The Prisoner's weird always. That one was just absolutely just drugged out, crazy pants and. I can't stand it. So, Although JMS is quoted as saying it was not intended as a prisoner riff. That song's really? been around for like a couple centuries. Oh, and yeah. he just picked a public domain version <laughs> and went with it. I bet it was one of those uh, subconscious things where he he would, he would either subconsciously remembered or was similarly scarred, like me, uh, <laughs> by that episode. And that's why it stuck out as being something intensely creepy. Possibly. He references uh, the Red Clay Ramblers um, at one point, according to the Lurker's Guide, uh, their version, one that being being one that stuck with him. The Red Clay Ramblers, which is uh, from North Carolina, one of the great exports of North Carolina, along with tobacco and uh, cheer wine and cheer wine and a certain amount of transphobia. Mm -hmm. But well, but enough. But enough about that. So, um. There has been a spirited argument on the Audio Guide to Babylon 5 uh, comment threads about whether this is, in fact, of a piece with uh, the previous three episodes, what we call the Holy Trilogy, which some people think should be the Holy Tetralogy. Ceremonies of Light and Dark is, well, it follows Severed Dreams. And anything that follows Severed Dreams is, I submit to you, going to pale in comparison. Well, we will get to Ceremonies of Light and Dark. Uh, should I go through the synopses, or should we reveal our feelings? Should we tell a secret that uh, we haven't told anybody <laughs> else about this episode? Uh, you know what? I will I will tell a secret, and I will say that uh, I don't think that this episode pales in comparison to Severed Dreams. So there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, my secret is that, uh, for once, I remembered only the bare bones of what was going on, and my so one speak. big impression was of the <laughs> command staff walking in their new uniforms and uh, the scene where they tell Delenn their secrets. Um, and I had remembered what had happened, but not how it was presented as well as I thought. So I, I did withhold judgment to be nice. Um, I, I'm going to say that, you know, this there's some really good stuff in here, but it's more of a epilogue or a coda than part of the part of the story set. That is the Holy Trilogy. Mm -hmm. I'm going to hold my fire. Let's just do, <laughs> let's just do okay. the uh, let's do the synopses, shall we? Yeah, lead on. If this is the very first episode of Babylon 5 that you ever saw, um, well then, uh, go back. <laughs> stop right now. Go back three episodes. We'll get back to you, I promise. <laughs> the setup for this episode, the bare minimum that one would need to know to fully appreciate uh, Ceremonies of Light and Dark. In response to takeover of the Earth Alliance by the corrupt President Clark, Babylon 5 has seceded and has begun purging the station of Clark's secret police, the Night Watch. Minbari Ambassador Delin came to the station's rescue after convincing half of her government that they could no longer sit on the sidelines as the great interstellar war they've been expecting against the shadows seems imminent. The status quo for Babylon 5 has been completely reset. In this episode, 
The Night Watch have gone to ground and hatched a plan to kidnap Delin, who has spent much of her time fruitlessly trying to organize a rebirth ceremony, and perhaps might have found the kidnapping a refreshing change of pace after getting turned down left and right. Working independently, Marcus and the command staff piece together where she was taken and mount a rescue. But not before Delin catches a knife in the back from a guy who's promptly pummeled into another incarnation by Sheridan. He and his team complete the rebirth ceremony at Delin's hospital bedside, during which Sheridan admits some deep feelings for her, and after which they show up in CNC with nifty new black uniforms. Oh, and Garibaldi has computer problems. We'll talk about that later. Oh, and Londo and Rifa share a drink. We'll talk about that later. And that was Ceremonies of Light and Dark. Erica, I'm going to ask you to expand on um, your satisfaction with this episode. Okay. Well, I, I certainly am not with the folks that think that this is a, a tetralogy or quadrilogy, which is a word that was made up for the Alien box set and is not really a word. Um, I guess technically <laughs> it is now, but I still I still go quadrilogy. Uh, I still go um, tetralogy over quadrilogy. Anyway, um, I do agree that this is separate enough from those events that, that you know, if, if the last quarter of a book was this mellow compared to the excitement of what we had in Severed Dreams, I would probably not be particularly fond of that book. So so I definitely think this is a, a this is like a novella that's released a couple of years later just to give you a little a little more or maybe a couple <laughs> months later, give you yeah. a little more information about the, the characters. But here we are again with Erica talking about characters. Severed Dreams was fantastic. It had excitement and action and things were happening. But as you know, if you listen to this very often, the, the stuff that really, really gets me most excited is the character work. So I'm not going to say that I like this story, better, this one better than I liked Severed Dreams. But I think there is so much going on with some of the characters that I really like here that that flesh them out or develop them. And I mean, in that the last scene at, at, uh, at Len's bedside, you get some some heavy stuff laid out. So I think for me, it really just comes down to this is an excellent, excellent, excellent episode as far as characters. Because when you have a a pinnacle that's so high with, with the action and the stress and stuff as something like Severed Dreams, I think for me, it's very interesting to watch the emotional fallout of something like that. And that is what we're seeing here. And I think it's done very well. Uh, I think I would agree with that, that any anything coming after Severed Dreams would pale by comparison because there is so much action. And I would argue there's some really good character stuff in Severed Dreams. It, of course, is mm-hmm. not as prominent as um, as the action. So doing what JMS did here and trying to go in sort of a different direction, to um, I think, helps. Um, I still think there's a couple of glaring weaknesses that um, really jumped at me on this viewing. But like you said, there's some really good stuff here. We get more with Marcus. We get more with Lanier. um, We get more with Londo um, Mm -hmm. and uh, the command staff. um, And we get more of Delenn. I mean, what how is she going to carry on um, with having planted the flag in Severed Dreams? What's she going to do next? Um, So... I think there's a huge amount of good stuff in this episode, and there are some things that I consider not so good. Yeah, I think I think it comes down to the you know the whole pales in comparison thing comes down to how excited you are about the character stuff, and I am so excited about it that it makes it not pale in comparison. It's 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 just a slightly slightly dimmer shining star next to Severed Dreams, which is also awesome. Yeah, I wish I could. I wish I could share that. Um, as I was watching this thing, uh, the word that kept coming back to me over and over again was melodrama. It felt so much clumsier to me than Severed Dreams, and I, I kept. And this is this is totally not fair, um, but I kept sort of putting myself in JMS's place, and I have just written this huge trilogy of three episodes you know massive plot massive status quo reset and it felt like a letdown like okay now what am i going to do and the decision to have the night watch to be suddenly much more thuggish much more um typical for your Babylon 5 down below bad guys after uh we've had so many episodes of the night watch being us uh, just 
opposed to us. Uh, between that and Psycho Creepy Guy and Harlan Ellison's computer voice. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> um, there was there was so much here that felt like a miss that uh, I had trouble appreciating a lot of the ca- the uh, character stuff. And in fact, some of the character stuff I actually felt was troweled on a bit too thick. Um, you know, we can we can we can talk about uh, Marcus and Lanier and Sheridan beating up Psycho Guy, shouting "No more, no more!" You know, things like that. I was craving a little more subtlety. It, it was as though we've had the big operatic moves in Messages from Earth, Point of No Return, and Severed Dreams, and we're still doing operatic flourishes with a much smaller story, and it didn't sit very well with me at all, I confess. All those things that you mentioned are, are, are most of them anyway, are things that I'm also not fond of. I hate the the creepy guy. I, I just, in my notes, I called him dead eyes because there's like nothing behind his eyes and it's <laughs> awful. Um, so yeah, that stuff, the computer stuff was not, uh, definitely, I would agree that they were misses to some extent. Uh, they definitely, those things paled in comparison to everything around them, but I liked I liked the character stuff. I didn't think any of it was traveled on too thick as we will as we will get to. So I think for me, and I mean honestly, and I almost hate to say this, but rewatching Severed Dreams, it, we'd had such sort of a build up to it and talked about it and looked forward to it so much. I felt like Severed Dreams was a tiny bit of a letdown simply because it was just built up so much and it really was more focused on the plot and the action, which, you know, to me is is much less interesting than than what's going on with the characters. And I think I was expecting Expecting ceremonies of light and dark to be a letdown simply because we had built up so much to sever dreams <laughs> and then we've got this and I think perhaps going in with such low expectations uh, really helped because this wildly exceeded what I was expecting to happen and I had like Shannon said she had forgotten a lot of the things that had happened in this I had too and I would keep seeing scene after scene and being like oh this is that beloved scene that I've always remembered it's in this episode and it happened again <laughs> and again so I think if we're going scene by scene and line by line for things that I that I remember fondly and love, I would actually say that for me, Ceremonies of Light and Dark is actually a little stronger than Severed Dreams. So hmm. there's that. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I could go completely in that direction, but I can also understand um, some of what, a lot of what Chip is saying. I could very easily throw out the entire Harlan Ellison as Sparky bit and just get rid of it. I mean, if all it is is to create the punchline for Garibaldi to shoot the um, control panel in the elevator, it wasn't necessary. That that's like totally... the most self-indulgent thing that Babylon Five has done to this point. Yeah, that, let's that, have fun. Yep. Let's have fun with my buddy Harlan. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that was totally out of left field and completely unnecessary. Um, I mean, you know, and it totally ruins the previous perfect joke of Peekaboo. I mean, that that was beautiful. Having Garibaldi's password be that. Um, the other thing, um, I can agree with what JMS was trying to do with this set of Nightwatch people. Um, he describes how, uh, on on the Lurker's Guide, he describes that what we have seen so far is the, like, polished public face of the Nightwatch mm-hmm. and, you know, all friendly and, and good and that this is essentially ripping off its mask to show that it's, you know, just home guard all over again. It is bigotry. It is ignorance. It is madness um, and paranoia. And I can appreciate what he was trying to do. I think it would have helped if there had been some more balance among that group. Um, Creepy dead guy. Okay. I can see the point. Um, uh, Don Stroud, the guy with the scar down one eye, as the you know thuggish, mouthy leader. Okay, if there had been a third speaking voice among that group that was a little more sane and a little more moderate, moderating, that would be a bridge between those two faces. Maybe it would have worked for me. One of the things I noted was how annoying it was when dead guy when dead eyes guy starts singing his song and the rest of the people are just sort of standing there and not (laughs) reacting at all i mean if i had been in that room 
and, you know, seeing him start to go off in that direction, I'd be looking worried. I'd be yeah. backing up. There he goes up. again. You want to grab a coffee? Yeah. yeah exactly. and, and there's none of that. And I think that's one of the things that weakens this side of the story is the fact that I feel JMS went too far in the other direction to get his point across. Yep. Um, I, I completely... And I'm not sure I can blame the actors. Uh, we've seen Don Stroud before under alien makeup as Caliban back in TKO, which... If I remember correctly, he did a decent job on. Yeah, he was um, one of the better parts of that episode. Yeah. Um, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I I, I agree. I, I like, uh, I had not read that in the Lurker's Guide about sort of JMS's idea about it, but that is exactly how I took it. I kind of love the idea that nestled within the Night Watch has always been this element. Like at its mm -hmm. core, it is it is awful. But mm -hmm. I do agree that, I mean, I noticed there's <laughs> there's one point where he one of those guys turns and asks if the, the comm channels are scrambled and the guy who clearly they didn't want to pay somebody for another speaking line yeah, just gives a thumbs up and a smile up. so i i yeah. do agree that the that had they had you know the, the budget or whatever for another person to to temper the the goofiness i it is a little bit of a throwback to season one's mm -hmm. you know these are the these are the over-the-top villains that we are going to hire to be really really bad bad guys and i i'm i'm kind of okay with the idea that all of the people who are left, you know, the the few are the the really the really totally awful people. But I, I am a little bit. I'm going to give it the side eye for the idea that those people could have stayed hidden. I mean, yeah. how is that guy with the dead eyes? How could he possibly act? I mean, you know. Yeah, I mean, the theory ugh. is that these. I mean, the impression is that these guys were once security. None of these people that. strike us as mm -hmm. as security. If if Nightwatch was mostly security people, yeah, that, I, I, that I don't no go sense. that far. We we saw yeah. plenty of uh, people in the meetings in earlier episodes wearing different uniforms, and okay. I'd like to think that we saw a few civilians in there um, because yeah. I don't know, remember at the moment because none of these guys are military, mm -hmm. right? Or well, former military, but not currently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, yeah, so I can see that possibility. And it also doesn't completely square with the idea that, uh, that they tell Garibaldi there's still people you don't know about currently on your staff. Um, nah, that I'd, made sense to me. It doesn't necessarily have to be true, but that's the kind of thing that they mm -hmm. would say in order to get him to mm -hmm. not okay. try And it was true funny. because they, had, they, had, they identified yep. the guy and fed him uh, misinformation right. for, the, uh, for the thing at the end. That's true. Yeah. And going back to the uh, the computer thing, I, I agree it was dumb. But I, I uh, once again, I like the the seed of it. I like the idea uh, of, of adding a little bit of levity to this episode, which, you know, most of it's most of it's pretty heavy. And I do like when Babylon 5 gives us a little bit of humor. I thought that the the actual writing and quote unquote acting of the uh, of the computer itself was definitely over the top and not good. If it had been something that was more toned down, like it was an AI that simply didn't cooperate because it was a computer and it was too literal or something, something like that, uh, I would have, I would have liked it. It was the the fact that it had a personality that was so ridiculous and obnoxious that was that was what rubbed me the wrong way so i i was i was kind of split on it i still like the fact that they they did it and i hated garibaldi shooting the inside of the, <laughs> the like somebody's got to come and fix that that costs money you yeah. are now separated from earth like the every every little <laughs> piece of of you know screw and piece of plastic needs to be saved that was dumb yeah I, I couldn't decide for the life of me whether that was meant to be a a swipe or a dig or a parody of Star Trek or some other show that has that kind of interaction with the ship's computer. I, but I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it but, still doesn't work even if that was the point. Right. Although it does sort of put a lantern on, you know, we're watching this 20 years later and we've got Siri and we've got uh, cell phones and things <laughs> like that. You know, just, as, just as the shows attitude towards news gathering is kind of dated, you know, that everything's done with CNN or universe today. Um, the, you know, changing our passwords, you know, things like that, that, just, that, that seems really kind of retro. Um, so, you know, uh, it does sort of 
why wouldn't the computer have had more of an AI kind of thing? You know, we're close to AI mm-hmm. now. It's going to be 200 years in the future, you know. But anyway, mm-hmm. so we, Shannon and me, more so than Erica, have been just sort of plowing into the uh, things that we didn't care for. Let's talk about some of the character stuff that did uh, that that did work. And I would start with uh, Sheridan, at, especially in the beginning of this episode, as... He's uh, debating, you know, whether he's going to wear his uh, uniform for the memorial service. And he talks about my hypocrisy only goes so far uh, and talks about his responsibility to be seen out um, in the public uh, on the station, you know. Um, Without an armed guard. Yeah. I like I like John Sheridan very much in this episode. Mm hmm. Yeah, he's great. And he's crafty. We, you know, we've got him thinking like a creative military commander again at the end. He's the one that comes up with a solution to surrender and then, you know, fake a, a coolant leak and, and flush them out that way. So it's 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 pretty consistent. And then, you know, we get the scene at the end with him and Delenn and I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, I would agree that this um, helps establish right away that Sheridan at least – among the command staff, and it's not that he's not the only one, but he's visibly the one already trying to shift into, okay, we are separated from Earth, we no longer have their support. Yes, we've got the Mimbari, but we've still got to figure out what that means. It's important to keep a calm face, um, a face of leadership to the station, and he's thinking in those terms already, even as he's uh, struggling with... um, his own role of essentially former Earth Force at this point. Um, so, yeah, uh, his overall, his, his uh, actions, um, his thoughts uh, really worked for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I was actually a little bit, a little bit surprised almost that he was the one that came up with the idea to bring the ceremony to Delenn. I mean, I think that just as much as his declaration at her bedside, that was what what really got me and told me that he cares that deeply for her. Uh, just, just a you know something like that was was not something that I necessarily expected. And as soon as he, as soon as he said he, he walked in with his uniform and said I wanted to bring the ceremony to you, I was just like. Wow, he mm-hmm. he loves her. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. Uh, we've been seeing the we've been seeing the relationship uh, deepening. He kissed her hand mm-hmm. uh, at, at at the end of Severed Dreams. This is a really heartfelt declaration without the L word ever used. Mm-hmm. Yep. Interestingly enough, um, mm-hmm. very very st- still very kind of formal, isn't it? Well, it the is. Mimbari are a formal people, and mm-hmm. uh, he he knows that. I I I think you know, like like Erica said, you know that he would think to bring the rebirth ceremony so that it could be completed in front of Delenn, um, that sort of thing. It, ever since he got to the station, you know, he's tried to you know at first reluctantly, but he's always tried to sort of meet the Mimbari halfway. Um, as best he could. And it's gotten easier the more he's gotten to know Delenn and Lanier, um, that, you know, it's begun to get easier for him to make that effort. I think that's part of it. I think part of it is also the fact that, you know, she nearly died um, saving his life because that knife was aimed at him that that got thrown. And she's the one who jumps in front of it just, to, you know, to fall creatively into his arms. So I was not surprised by it. Um, yeah. I think it's the, I think it's the next step. It is. And as as far as the formality goes, yes, you know, they have sort of just a formal relationship in general because of who they are and what their positions are to their governments. But I also think it might have been a little bit of a pulling back from that scene that you mentioned earlier, Chip, Mm -hmm. where we have action captain running down the hallway and and beating the crap out of of dead eyes. and I, I actually like that scene because we've had, you know, we had him struggling at the beginning of the episode, struggling with his hypocrisy, and he feels like he's caught between a rock and a hard place, and he he hates that that things have come to this and they've had to secede, and he's got all of this stuff just building up inside of him. And the moment that he sees this this woman whom he knew he cared about but didn't realize he cared about that much until that moment, like that was just something snapping inside of him, and that was that was. You know him shouting no more. I absolutely bought that. Yeah, I I think I did it. I can understand and see where Chip's coming from, but it worked for me as well for the same reasons that Erica just mentioned. And then I think the the bedside scene might have been like you know he realized that he had gone 
that far. I mean, he didn't go too far. It's not like he almost killed the guy or anything. I was a little bit surprised by how few punches he he landed <laughs> on that guy before he stopped. I thought he was going to keep going a little bit more. I think was if it was a modern TV show, it would have gotten a lot more bloody. Uh, but I think that he realized that that was like him losing control a little bit and he pulled himself back into control to declare his his feelings such as they are. And also, you know, he I'm sure he has an inkling that she feels similarly, but he you know, anytime you're in those early stages of a relationship, you don't really know what the other person's thinking and you can't necessarily trust trust yourself. So he wasn't going to go and get all terribly mushy because maybe he wasn't entirely sure what her response would be. You know, even if she felt the same way, maybe as a, an ambassador, she wouldn't have felt that she could reciprocate anyway. So he might have put a, a bit of a, a layer of formality over it just to mitigate the, those possibilities. My final comment on the subject is that uh, when he's beating up the guy and saying, no more, no more, I kept expecting to see Billy Piper in the background as though she <laughs> was too. making fun of John Hurt saying, yeah, no more, no more. Just, I did actually say that uh, as soon as that scene was over. I think Stephen rolled his eyes at me. I think I missed oh, this episode. <laughs> uh, let's quickly run through some of our other characters because there are lots of character moments in here and uh, Revelation – from Lanier. Should we have seen that coming? Steven saw it coming. I can tell you that. I asked him after the episode, I was like, what about that thing with Lanier? Were you surprised? And he was like, absolutely not. Said, it is It is completely obvious that he just adores her and dotes on her. So he was just, Steven wasn't phased one bit. So I do think that that was, that was seated pretty well. Um, I was a little surprised to hear him say it out loud like that. And then when he goes on in his, his speech about, you know, it being a, a perfect and pure love, I was just like <laughs> rolling my eyes like, oh, you are such a puppy dog. Yeah. Yeah. Say, same here. Um, it is absolutely no leap of faith at all to see this. Um, it's been telegraphed. It's been building. Um, and um, it had me sort of cringing slightly because it's like, you know, okay, Lanier, really? Are you are you sure? This 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 never comes out well. This, this really doesn't. <laughs> um to, to protest that, you know, it's, you know, I, I'm going to love her until my dying day, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Um, that, yeah, saying that he is, he, actually, I have to say Bill Mooney's delivery of the line about how he knew she was, you know, faded to enough for another or something like that. But, uh, but but that he didn't care or it didn't matter or whatever. His mm -hmm. delivery of that line, I think, was perfect because yeah. it sounded like he had almost convinced himself but not 100%. It was just, yeah. it was it was right on the bubble. Mm -hmm. I would yeah. agree. I look very askance at people who make those kinds of statements. Uh, mm -hmm. Mainly because when I was younger, I tended to make those kinds of statements. <laughs> here, um, here. When you're describing a feeling that you have as something higher or purer, that's a hell of a lot of presumption. And I don't, I don't buy it for a second. And... I especially don't buy it because Lanier doesn't really buy it for a second. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's 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 some envy and some jealousy in there. Um, oh yeah, and that's you know, I do judge Lanier a little. It, it sort of it sort of lessens him a bit in my eyes, uh, which is not really fair because you know you can't <laughs> control who you feel attracted to or protective of and. Uh, Dolin is clearly and obviously very, very special, um, not just to Lanier, but in her own right. Um, so, um, yeah, I also like that when Marcus gets really informal with Lanier and mm -hmm. grabs him by the shoulder, you know, mm -hmm. Lanier just takes him uh -uh. up. And that was that was that was pretty impressive. You know, Bill Mooney as tough guy. Yes, actually. <laughs> and and the line, you know, we we may sometimes look like you, but we are not you. That just cuts right to the core. That's that's another another example of JMS using as few words as, as possible to get the the point across, and and mm -hmm. bam, it hits. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I don't know that I would. Uh, it didn't make me think less of Lanier. It made him more relatable, the as a character, um, to me. Um, the fact that you know this is finally a genuine weakness on his part uh, beyond just being devoted um, beyond all measure to Delenn, which is most of what we've seen so far. Um, so that, that, that actually, 
it it resonated. It worked for me, even as it made me go like, oh, dude, <laughs> you didn't go there. <laughs> yeah. And he also had, you know, even his early scene on when Dylan asks his his opinion on mm-hmm. what's what's going down recently. He just, you know, he says opinion does not enter into it. What is, is. And I feel like that's uh, that kind of an answer is is on a par a little bit with his line about the, you know, pure and noble higher love because, mm-hmm. you know, he's he is very much trying to be this perfect religious caste Mimbari who is just taking things as they come and, you know, answering to to whomever, whatever higher power or in this case, Delenn and uh, and yeah, I, I, I that's one of the things I really like about this episode is we get to see that from Lanier kind of on display and with a spotlight. It gives yeah. him some flavor. His, his answers are correct. They are the mm-hmm. thing that one should always aspire to. Uh, if you take mindfulness meditation or things like that, you know, accepting situations as they are, not as you want them to be, um, things like that. You know, he's saying all of the right things. I don't believe mm-hmm. him for a second. <laughs> yep. You know, that's actually a really good segue into talking about Marcus because mm-hmm. that was one of the things I noticed is he's just so far on the opposite end of that. He is not accepting things as they are. He is he's really sort of holding on to his his anger and he's clinging to the thought of his sacrifices, which, you know, that's that's not just a sci-fi cop- concept because there are whole self-help books out there about just that thing when you you take the the story of your victimhood and make that your entire life rather than focusing on the things that are actually happening around you and the things that matter. And he's even still doing that in the next scene he makes the hostage situation about himself he's like oh no i did it again i stepped away for a couple of minutes Mm -hmm. and somebody got hurt and as much as i love marcus i think he's such a well-developed character because that's a huge personal like failing and the fact that he's so cagey about going to this rebirth ceremony because he wants to hang on to that and he never even and he doesn't go to the rebirth ceremony at the end even though he Mm -hmm. certainly certainly could have i think that that's so neat because then you get to balance it with him being a totally awesome quippy badass which i love so so yay marcus that was another thing that that i remembered from this episode uh or my memory was was brought up in watching this and i was like yeah that's right woo two by four nice um, nice moment by the way between him and lanier when um after lanier makes his revelation about his secret and Marcus does it does have a quieter moment when he uh, thanks Lanier for making that admission and recognizes even though that this is not his thing that was a big thing for Lanier and he you know he handles Lanier's revelation a bit more maturely than even Lanier does arguably (laughs) (laughs) that's true and and also we you know we kind of see I thought that the writing was very interesting because we get, um, and I hope it was on purpose, we get sort of an echo of of Marcus mirroring Mr. Deadeyes because you have Marcus talking about starting with the syndicate guy's fingers as he's trying to mm-hmm. torture him for information, which harkens right back to what Deadeyes was saying about the Mimbari POWs and like mm-hmm. cutting off their fingers one by one. I was... I was uh, it was chilled by that in in a very good way. And at the beginning of the episode, he also offers some perspective on how the colonies see Earth. You know, right. it's just a place that sent us books and vids and took 30% of our income. We should have given them the boot years ago. So he's, I, I feel like he is, he's reflecting an awful lot of things throughout the entirety of this episode. And it's pretty cool. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and I also liked, I think that they were very smart, um, whether it was time constraints or just a conscious decision, not to actually show the majority of the fight scene. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've seen how yes. B5 has difficulty staging those things. So to have Marcus make the promise and all of the guys stand up and then we switch and we come back later to find Marcus, the only one standing up among all of those bodies. I think that worked um, very well overall, um, rather than trying to show the actual fight scene. I have a question, though. Can one plausibly be such a tough guy when one has really great hair? <laughs> if oh, one is oh. willing to let that hair be pulled. Yeah, did you see how like it got all tussled and mussed up and stuff like by, <laughs> after the fight? So, so yes, I am absolutely on board with a character having great hair like that, as long as he's willing to let it get a little messy. Pantene, when you're going to get into a really big fight later today. (laughs) 
I, I would buy it with that uh, with that tagline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, um, let's see here. We'll get to the rebirth ceremony in a bit, but uh, just completely separated from that. Londo and Rifa, this is my favorite part of the story. Londo and Rifa's scene is just deadly. And this is the sort of this is the sort of thing that really excites me about Babylon Five. I, I I still feel like the most of the other character stuff in this episode is a little too melodramatic for my taste. But uh, Londo and Rifa, it's like a perfect chess game that they're playing. And Rifa's face when he loses it when he realizes that he's just been poisoned is delightful. I like seeing Londo throwing his weight around, uh, trying to br- pull his people back from what he perceives to be the brink. This is my <laughs> Babylon 5 candy. This is what I <laughs> yeah. eat up. Yeah, it's would, great. And yeah, I love the I'll, idea that Londo, he's he's trying to pull, pull back from the brink because he wants to save Centauri Prime, but he's also doing it because, because he can and because Rifa would eventually do it to him. I like that he he owns up to the fact that this is the world that we're living in now. So I am happy to live in it in this manner. Yeah. Um, this harkens back to a lot of the Centauri we saw developing through Londo's eyes at the time when Londo was ineffectual and powerless and scheming. Um, and then he meets Morden and suddenly he's in the thick of things and we can see how cutthroat, uh, the Centauri society can be, such as uh, the friend who arranges for, you know, suicide by Londo in a duel, things like that. This brings us back to the fact that the Centauri can be really, really nasty to one another. Um, and the fact that it that Rifa gets it is just, you know, makes you clap because <laughs> Rifa is just such an officious little toad. Um, <laughs> well And said. the scene itself is played so well. You know, Londo is like, you know, well, this is this and this is this. And because I've poisoned your drink, just that that feels perfectly in character for, for Londo. And both actors mm-hmm. just play it out very, very well. Even as they sort of update us, um, and I also like the fact that um, you get a bunch, bunch of exposition in that scene on what's going on with Centauri Prime, and it doesn't feel like exposition because it's this you know dialogue between these two characters trying to co- each convince the other that their path is correct. And it's some of the best dialogue in the episode too. Only the heir to the mm-hmm. throne of the kingdom of idiots would fight a war on twelve fronts. <laughs> <laughs> It is. It is excellent. And it is kind of a nice check-in on what's actually happening with, with Mr. Morden, Space Mob, and the Shadows. Uh, before we started watching the episode, Stephen turned to me and he said, uh, when was the last time that we saw Space Mob? Like, I don't remember what's going on with him. And I said, well, remember, Londo kind of kicked him to the curb, but then we you know, heard that, that he was in contact with Lord Rifa, and that's how the Narns ended up getting completely screwed. And Stephen was like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's mm-hmm. right. So this, the episode starts, and, and Marcus shows up, and Stephen goes, hey, Aragorn. Like, he's all <laughs> excited that he's here. And then the, then the scene comes up with uh, with Londo, and Lord Rifa shows up, and Stephen kind of looks at me like, whoa. And then they show, they have the little hologram of Mr. Morden standing on the table. And Stephen just freaks out and turns to me. He's like, oh, my God, if the telepath shows up, I'm just freaking out. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> nope, no telepath in this one. But but he did get more, uh, more continuity on stuff that he was wondering about than he expected. So that was kind of mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. Well, there has been a lot going on. Yes. You could say that. Yeah. And you what? just did. And I also like the tie-in to the fact that, um, you know, when Delenn asks Londo, she she thinks of Londo as the very first person who needs this rebirth ceremony. And if we think about Londo's last big appearance, he was going through a bunch of self-doubt. He had asked, you know, the, this prophetess to come and see for him so he could try to figure out which way he should go. Um, whether he should just keep going on the path he thinks is destined for him or should he try to change it. You know, so Delenn is being very perceptive and thinking that, you know, Londo needs a rebirth here. Um, But Londo has already made his choice, um, at least at this point, because, you know, he poisons Rifa. He's trying to wrest uh, the Centauri away from the shadows uh, in any way that he can. Um, And he is convinced that at the moment, He's doing the right thing. So I don't need no stinking rebirth. Um, so <laughs> also, that ties in really well with um, with what we've been seeing from him the last few episodes. Also, as Steven said at that point uh, during that scene, he just leaned over. He's talking about the Mimbari and goes, they don't know how to host a party. 
<laughs> well, Sheridan did fall asleep that one time. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> okay, uh, l- we need to wrap things up before we go into spoiler territory. So let's go back to the rebirth ceremony. Uh, <laughs> what did we learn about our characters? And, you know, are these reveals weighty enough? I suspect I know Erica's answer. <laughs> Yes. Yes, they are. Oh, it was just it was such a heavy, heavy scene for me. It uh, everything, everything worked. I was not I for some reason, every time I think about this story, I always remember that there was a big ceremony for some reason. And I forget that there isn't and that it just happens in this intimate way in Dylan's Dylan's uh, hospital room. And so when everybody comes in and gives these, you know, she becomes the, the keeper of the secrets because that's that's she's the only person there and i was i was kind of rocked back by these these admissions from people and i i thought they were all great i think jms scored 100% with this particular thing because we have sheridan admitting to delenn that you know he's starting to that he's discovered he's got feelings for her um and um ivanova ivanova's revelation about talia i think is brilliant um in yeah, a that subtle Stephen- Stephen was very surprised by that. Oh, really? Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because I think it's a, a wonderful way to acknowledge what JMS didn't feel he could bring out 100% into the open in the 90s, the idea of a same-sex relationship developing. So that worked very, very well for me to sort of establish as canon. It's like, you know, those of those of the folks who saw this happening, saw this develop and were, you know, crushed by um, Talia's exit as a character, you know, simultaneously are like punching the air and face palming and about to cry because it's like what could have been. Well, Um, let me let me interrupt there for a second, because it does feel kind of dated to me for exactly that reason. You know, divided loyalties would have been a little more explicit if it had been made today. And Ivanova's revelation, her, her, her secret wouldn't have been all that much of a secret. Would I think it, it would I mean, have to Ivanova. I mean, this is also, you know, Ivanova is one of the m- characters who is, keeps to herself the most and is hardest to get to know. So I think it's very in character for her, uh, for her. I think, I think it would have had the same weight in this specific scene. If Talia had been Tom, you know, and it was just the same idea of, uh, you know, a, a romance developing that got cut short. I, for, for Ivanova's character alone, it works for me um, in the larger social um, quagmire of, you know, of, of homosexuality and people who are against it. You know, maybe these days it doesn't feel quite as weighty, but I think for, for Ivanova personally, it does. And I think that, I mean, Stephen's sort of shock at that was just because, wow, that's a, that was a big deal for the 1990s, you know, to have basically a lesbian relationship confirmed on screen. And not only that, because we also know that uh, that Susan has had relationships with men in the past, that's a confirmed bisexual character, which mm-hmm. is, which is uh, you know, something that even now is much, much rarer on television than a, a gay or lesbian character. So um, yay for representation. <laughs> okay. Sorry for the interruption, though, Shannon. You were okay. going through the ritual. Yeah, I was going through the list. Um, uh, and for the last two, for Garibaldi and Franklin, um, their confessions just both encapsulate their characters so perfectly. Uh, the fact that Garibaldi is constantly terrified of slipping back into addiction, and he doesn't want to go back to it. And on the other end of the spectrum, we've been seeing Stephen inching towards this addiction problem and he's suddenly finally beginning to realize this may not be in my control anymore Hmm. so those both work so well for me you know i didn't read uh, garibaldi as talking about chemical addiction i thought it was more about uh you know violence and internal rage and stuff uh, when he said something about losing, I immediately thought about his alcoholism when whatever the line was, losing control, because mm-hmm. that was something else. I had I had remembered him starting that line before we re- rewatched saying, I'm afraid all the time. And I was remembering, you know, that, well, OK, yeah, your, your security, you're supposed to protect everybody. I can see that. I had forgotten that he went on to say, what happens if I lose control? And then it just made it ring even more true for me because I immediately thought about the alcoholism. 
I thought it was it was actually kind of encapsulating all of those things because when you have that type of addiction, quite often all of your emotional and and you know mental problems are kind of all wrapped up in one thing. You can't actually separate the alcohol addiction from the anger issues. They are tied up together in one big ball. So for me, it really read as yes, he was talking about he was talking about his addiction issues, but he was also talking about all the associated crap that that comes along with it, including, you know, the anger and stuff. So what you're saying is we're both right. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. Good job, guys. Gold how can star. I be one up on my spouse if uh, you say that we're both right? I don't. <laughs> well, let's talk about the works. next person and see uh, see who wins there. Hmm. <laughs> Except, I think we might agree on that one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh well. Okay. Uh, last uh, last uh, couple of little checks before we go into spoiler space. Uh, costume check. I understand that Stephen had seen at some point or another promotional pictures or something like that. He knew that new costumes were coming at some point. So I'm sure that he was happy to have that little question no longer hanging over him. Yeah, it was actually when uh, when the Doctor Who episode Sleep No More came out. Uh, Reese Shearsmith was was the the bad guy in that one and had an outfit that was very similar to these new new uniforms. And somebody had posted something about that on Twitter. So Stephen saw that, so he knew it was coming. But he was so excited about it. They walked out, they <laughs> strutted out in their new uniforms, and he just cheered and raised his hands in the air. And he was very very impressed with how sharp these uniforms are. He's he's a uniform nerd. I mean, he followed. <laughs> was a uniform blog for like sports and stuff so he pays attention to these things and was very very pleased okay, i love then. these uniforms i Me love too. them and you're talking to a guy who wears a who has worn his first ever cosplay uniform uh the the uh, original earth force uniform but i love this uniform this black uniform it's got some minbari uh stuff going on if you look closely you see a ranger uh patch on the shoulder it's it's awesome. Also, if yeah, you they, notice, they uh, obviously put a huge amount of thought into coming up with these uniforms and props to the those who actually did it. As you said, um, a lot of Mimbari influence. We see the triangular design for the three that influences so much of Mimbari society. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that they're black is a kind of a nice statement. I mean, you know, these are supposed to be the good guys. Um, so, yeah, so apparently in Mimbari society, the color black is not necessarily associated with all things dark and evil uh, the way it is with humans. Um, ah, so it's that's just, a nice... It's a cool flip-flop. color. If you're wearing black, you're <laughs> tough. Possibly that too, but yeah, I, I still think that JMS was deliberately trying to upend expectations by having, having the good guys uh, be dressed in black. Mm-hmm. You know, Stephen had a question about that. He didn't want to do research online because he's deathly afraid of spoilers. Mm-hmm. He was wondering, did the plot drive these new uniforms or was this a case where they just wanted to have some new uniforms and wrote in order to make that happen? Do you guys know? I'm pretty sure that this was plot driven. Yeah, that, I, that's I, what think, I thought. Yeah, I, I think JMS had intended to do something with to, to separate, you know, with this idea of that if Earth is separating from if, if if Babylon 5 is separating from Earth, that you're going to have to have some visual representation. And this is a much more, this presents a united front in a way that just them, you know, like going around in their shirt sleeves doesn't. Yeah. Um, and, 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 the, and apparently the cast loved the new uniforms. They were apparently like easier to move around in and a little more comfortable. Hmm. I can believe that. But I will also note that there are examples in the JMS oeuvre of uh, uniforms being changed, not for plot reasons, but to go into any more detail about that would be a spoiler. (laughs) Fair enough. Okay. So uh, last question. Uh, Erica, I I get the impression that Stephen kind of liked this one. He did. He said it was a good episode. You know, he said it's 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 an episode after the big episode. Um, so you know, that's it. It was fine for that. Uh, the thing that he noticed was how different it looked, and that was because the uh, the the DOP, the director of photography, was actually the director. Of the director. This episode. Mm-hmm. And he noticed that the camera work was 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 different, and it was it's interesting to see what happens when that one person has full creative control. Uh, you don't have him trying to you know translate what he wants into you know somebody else to have it 
have him do it. So, you know, he noticed the the uh, Mr. Deadeyes guy walking up to Delenn with the gun as the camera is pushing in at the same time. Um, I quite liked the scene with... Um, with Delenn and Lanier talking to Londo, where we had, you know, kind of a nice tight two shot on Delenn and Lanier, but the shot on Londo was a nice tight close up, but it was just a little bit from a from a higher angle. So it's like we're kind of looking down on on Londo at this point in the series, hmm. um, especially coming from the Minbari. I just thought that was a nice sort of subtle touch, so that that worked. But Stephen did have another question: um, is, Was there some reason why the DOP was the director here? Was that just because he was going to direct or was there, did somebody else, you know, fall out or, cause it seems like an odd thing to have one person it's handling hap- both. Well, of it's that. happened before. I think, I think Flynn has stepped up to direct uh, a, an episode or two previously. Okay. So I, I don't remember if that. he was also um, in charge of photography for those episodes, like he was for this one, but he, he has directed B5 before. I have yeah, and the, the last add. thing that uh, the last thing that I didn't already mention from Stephen, because oh, if you thought Aragorn was an annoying title, um, please brace yourself, because after Lanier's declination uh, declaration and and, oh, no. and saying how his uh, his his love was was so much purer and and you know a higher kind of love, he oh, was God. like, oh, Lanier is Smithers to her, Mister Burns. Oh my God. <laughs> So he's like, can I call him Smithers? And I was like, no. No. <laughs> no, you may not. <laughs> I oh, apologize God. on behalf of my spouse. There's that, that <laughs> I, yeah. Well, not really on his behalf because he's not sorry, but I am. <laughs> oh, God. That's funny. Sorry, guys. <laughs> it's all right. Um, You're not the one who should be sorry. I know. <laughs> I know. I'll make him pay. Don't you worry. Oh, God. Uh, and on that bombshell okay well i wanted to throw out like just a couple of really quick things um i mentioned before about um how delenn wound up being the one to shield sheridan um from the knife that would have almost certainly hurt him very badly if not killed him i also noticed that ivanova got the kill shot uh to um to the character played by stroud um that that you know, yep. so it's, you know, they're all firing, yeah. But Ivana was the one who lands on him, um, and also uh, props to the Mimbari captain. I know he didn't do a huge amount in this episode, but that was Kim Strauss, who, bless his heart, has been many, many, many times on Babylon Five since season two, playing various characters under makeup. And this time, we get to see his face, so that was pleasant. <laughs> all right, shall we go into spoiler space, folks? Let's do it. All right. Uh, Your homework is Erica's favorite episode. And by the luck of the draw, she gets to um, she gets to uh, moderate it. Sarah, a late delivery from Avalon. (laughs) Woohoo! I don't know about favorite, but I am very excited. Yeah, that's uh, Michael York, and that is all kinds of uh, thematic stuff. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it, it. uh, I'm 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 looking more forward to this one than I was uh, for uh, to ceremonies <laughs> of light and dark. I'll tell you that. Uh, that'll be next time. Uh, you can comment about ceremonies of light and dark, or a late delivery from Avalon, or any other episode that has appeared up to this point on the audio guide playlist at our website b5audioguide.com, and we're on Twitter and Tumblr at b5audioguide as well. Okay. Let's hop into a jump gate. Spoilers are ahead. And we're back. Uh, right off the top, let's uh, let's go back to the rebirth ceremony. Um, mm-hmm. Not just as a recap, but as a look forward. Um, I think it's obvious that uh, the rebirth ceremony establishes where Sheridan and Delenn's relationship are going to go. Um, Mm -hmm. And also, you know, it's interesting that Franklin seems to acknowledge that he has a problem, and then he almost immediately dismisses that. Any thoughts about uh, where those two characters are going to go, and if we get any hints about Ivanova and Garibaldi's fates as well? 
I think I think Stephen is uh, Frank. Dr. Franklin is is right on track. Actually, like he's mm-hmm. recognizing that he has a problem, and that for for many people happens quite early on. And yeah, yeah, <laughs> just like well, and we're actually you know, only five episodes away from Walkabout, where he actually you know has steps away from his position, realizing that he can no longer safely treat patients. So I think this is a good spot for him to at least to himself and to this person who will keep his secret that he's at least willing to say the words aloud. So it works for me there. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's interesting. I mean, he, he, he goes through a fair bit of denial all the way up to interludes and examinations. Um, but uh, yeah. Yeah. And I don't think it's unusual for denial to follow a, a declaration like that. Um because you know, there's there's a lot of there can be a lot of waffling back and forth and being like, I think I have a problem. And like, no, 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 I've got it under control. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. I'm fine. I can quit anytime I want. You know, that's it's a it's a cliche for a reason. Yeah. Would he have said it? Would he have said it to Garibaldi at this point? No, he wouldn't have. Oh no. But you know, would he, is he saying it in this particular? Does he see this as something that he can at least voice in a safe spot where it's not going any further? Yes. Uh, Garibaldi, he's got a twisty little future. Oh man. <laughs> yeah, but it's not I don't know. I don't I don't see his his revelation here actually being much of a revelation. I don't I don't know that his story cuz it's I mean, it, it kind of makes sense because we find out later, later, later that it it wasn't really Garibaldi's fault. His mind had been had been messed with. Um so, I mean, in retrospect, it's hard to see this as something that leads to that. But I suppose if you're watching this for the first time and you don't know uh, all of the spoilers and what's happened, then, you know, maybe you could see his his turn as him letting go. And Yeah, because we, we had the example back in uh, season one, was it? I think it was Survivors that where he does briefly, you know, go back into the bottle. So we have seen that it is in him if it's bad enough. To lose control. So I think it resonates. Um, but, you know, the fact that when he goes off the rails so completely, as Erica said, ultimately, eventually, we find out that it's Bester's fault and not Garibaldi's. Mm-hmm. That um, that it just... Well, the first time around. Yeah. The second time around, it's, uh, it is it is kind of his fault. You know, he mm-hmm. is going to be drunk at a communication station missing uh, missing an important uh, message that leads to fighting with the Centauri and things like that later on in season mm-hmm. five. Yeah, that is true. But would he have been at that point if Bester wouldn't have already messed with his head in the first place? I very much doubt it. That's true, because that he, he crawls back into the bottle after mm-hmm. he realizes that he can't, that uh, Bester's put an Asimov block in him. Mm-hmm. And then as far as uh, Ivanova's concerned, uh, you know. Well, her secret's in the past. I mean. Yeah, yeah. her secret's in the past and any future. um, There could have been some interesting stuff um, that it could have uh, presaged if uh, the original plan had gone through if she had stuck around for season five. Mm -hmm. uh, Because uh, she would have been the one to have uh, had a conflicted relationship with uh, Byron not mm-hmm. um not Lita um at least to a certain extent because uh Byron was very much designed to be a sort of a to have some uh, pseudo Marcus to be sort mm-hmm. of a pseudo Marcus um English mm-hmm. long hair he's designed to <laughs> and you know her dealing with whether she can let somebody in or not you know and having let Talia in and all that stuff that might have had some resonance but yeah you're right it's mostly it's mostly about the past uh, any other thoughts about the rebirth ceremony, or shall we talk about Nightwatch a bit? I'm good with Nightwatch. Nightwatch. I'm not exactly. good with Nightwatch. No, no. <laughs> yeah. I do not recall that Nightwatch really has much of an impact on the show, on the station I, I, in the future. I couldn't come, I think they're done. Yeah, I come up with anything, yeah. I can't immediately remember, yeah, any other points where, at least on Babylon 5 itself, that Nightwatch is an issue. I'm, well... Or in general, really, yeah, yeah, and yeah, I, think, I, from, I think from from here on out, a, a lot of the com- all the conflict seems to be purely in at the at the level of the armed forces, rather than um, any propaganda. Other than um, yeah, the only propaganda we get here from here on out is the um, the fake ISN reporters feeding uh, feeding their own information. 
So. Yeah, I, I feel like that that's a that this is a thread that more could have been done with. I would think. I don't know if you're just left with like I mean they they got rid of all the guys that they found. So if there's anybody left at this point, it's really only got to be just you know one or two people who are left. And the only way that I think that they could be narratively used very interestingly is if there's you know some sort of sabotage they could do but we've had sabotage stories i don't know that we necessarily huh. need to retread that ground yeah now that i think of it i mean the the, the whole design behind nightwatch was to be the eyes and ears and stop things before they started mm-hmm. things have started Th- things have blown up i mean there's no need to sort of hide the fact that the Clark government has been trying to entrench itself so firmly that it can't be dislodged. Um, so, yeah, now that I think about it, I'm not sure that Nightwatch, if it's not needed anymore, um, that that it's any use bringing it up again. Um, Londo. This is such an important <laughs> scene for Londo, oh, and it is yeah. going to have so many repercussions going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just kept thinking of all of the things that, you know, cascade from this moment. You know, Londo poisons poisons Rifa. Rifa does what he tells him and backs off from Morden. Morden gets upset about that, decides to frame Rifa for killing Adira. And then, you know, that makes Londo go all crazy and be like, all right, Mr. Morden, I'll work with you again because I'm, you know, revenge. My personal revenge is more important than the fate of my planet at this moment. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Heartbreaking. Um, yeah, and this could, you know, potentially be seen as, you know, down the road with and the rock cried out, not killing the man who's already dead. I mean, Rifa's got this, you know, signa- death, you know, at any point, Londo can, you know, snap his fingers and finish the job. So it's kind of like Rifa's, in a way, already neutralized and already dead. Mm-hmm. So I know there's other interpretations as well, but that's always the one I kind of feel might be plausible. Mm-hmm. And the uh, last bit that I've got uh, is Lanier's arc. We've sort of discussed in pre-spoiler mm-hmm. space that, uh, yeah, this is this is not a big surprise that, uh, you know, he's been behaving in a way that makes his confession of love for Delenn plausible. So thinking about Lanier's arc through to the end of the series, does this moment do enough to sort of set up where Lanier is going? I probably didn't think so the first time I the first couple of times I watched through the show because it, his turn at the end uh, always came as kind of a harsh shock but now that I'm watching for it and actually paying closer attention to like say Billy Mooney's performance in in the scene it I mean maybe it's not uh maybe it's not carried forward as well as it could be but this in this moment I can absolutely see the the repercussions of this being him turning uh, and becoming stupid, uh, but uh, so so here, I think that the seed is planted very well. I just I don't know that it's it's watered and, and grown as as nicely as it should be in order to to end up being the ugly stinky flower that it is at the end. Certainly not in big scenes or in big speeches like this one, but I'm definitely going to be paying attention going forward, you know, as far as things in the background, you know, Lanier being in the background as Delenn and Sheridan grow closer and, you know, him watching from a distance, you know, anything like that. If there's more of that as we go forward, then this definitely works for me. It, it works for me anyway, but um, as to whether or not it's supported sufficiently going forward, I'm just going to have to pay attention and watch and see how much of it happens uh, through the actor's performance and the direction of him as a background character versus being one of the ones that are speaking. And, you know, I think part of it for me might be that in the past watching television, I wasn't always a very savvy consumer of media and I just kind of let the show wash over me and I didn't I wasn't one of those those fans that that dug in and really analyzed what characters were doing or thinking uh, so now looking at it I'm I'm interested to see if if all of the the things that Lanier does like you say not on the the larger stage necessarily really do point to where he he ends up going and it's just stuff that's subtle enough that past Erica didn't really catch it and you know current media obsessed Erica will will get it and and it'll it'll play out better this time. I'm excited to find out. 
I do like your analogy, though, Erica. The seed has been planted. They just <laughs> threw a bunch of miracle grow on it and objects at rest. <laughs> mm-hmm. Possibly. Boom, suddenly it's huge. Yeah. Possibly. Okay, uh, any uh, closing thoughts on the future of Babylon 5 as writ in Ceremonies of Light and Dark? I'm just excited. I'm just excited to see to see things keep happening. And I'm, as always, very excited to watch Stephen's uh, reactions to them, especially at this point, because now, you know, this was sort of our falling action after we had our Holy Trilogy. And now we get back to, you know, things are still moving. Stuff is in mm-hmm. action. But our, our next episode is, is very much sort of a, a, a one-shot, you know, monster of the week. Not monster, but, you know, guest of the week kind of episode. And I... I, I'm interested to see what his reaction is to going back to that sort of a, a pace and style because, you know, this is a old school U.S. television style. You got 20 some episodes per season and it's 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 not quite the same as what we've gotten used to lately. So I want to know how he feels about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that just occurred to me um, that, you know, sort of is worth talking about here in spoiler space is the fact that we get another chunk of the prophecy that the Mimbari apparently are have been revolving their religious um, spirituality around uh, the idea that we must unite with the other half of our soul, um, which you know the, can be you know big picture the Mimbari and the humans. We have heard already that uh, human souls are being reborn. I mean, Mimbari souls are being reborn mm-hmm. into human bodies. And therefore, these two races have to get together if there's any hope of defeating the shadows. Um, but also, you know, sort of the, the another hint of uh, Sheridan and Delenn coming together on a personal level and uh, becoming a couple. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I also like that uh, Delenn sort of walks back the prophecy a little bit, just mm-hmm. enough to just enough to, um, in my mind. Just enough to give JMS a little bit of wiggle room so that if any of his other plans that he'd had uh, for the original arc, especially with uh, Sinclair involved instead of Sheridan, you know, um, her, her, her statement there gives us a little bit of wiggle room. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we also get an interesting bit um, from her when she's talking to to Dead Eyes in her speech, talking about how uh, this the Mimbari went mad together when their leader was mm-hmm. killed, and then woke up together. So you know we haven't gotten to in the beginning yet, but this is you know a very short encapsulation of of what we find out happened to spur on that war. Hmm. Okay, uh, I'm taking a moment to look at the master episode list at uh, the Lurker's Guide at midwinter.com/lurk. And I will note that we are three episodes away from a ship through full of cryogenically frozen telepaths. Wow. We are four episodes away from the death of Kosh. Hmm. We are six episodes away from the return of Babylon 4. Wow. wow. We've come so far, you guys. Things are moving. <laughs> In... Indeed. Things are moving. And for people like Stephanie who are spoil uh, who are, are, are unafraid of spoilers, we've just sort of laid a buffet out there for you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, that's what you got to look forward to. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but next time, a late delivery from Avalon, Michael York thinks he's Arthurian. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's delightful. that's next time that is next time on the audio guide to babylon 5 but until then this is chip and durham erica in edmonton and shannon in durham thanks for listening to the audio guide to babylon 5 we'll see you in two weeks or whenever you get around to listening to this bye-bye